Welcome to the Entrepreneur Hot Seat, where I talk to entrepreneurs and business people from all walks of life and all levels of success, from millionaires to the people who are just starting out and everyone in between. My objective is not only to learn about their businesses and goals, but about their challenges and fears as well, all with the hopes of helping them and you find a pathway to success. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am so grateful that you are joining me today for a conversation with Dr. Gay Hendricks. And Gay Hendricks has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind transformation for more than 45 years. After earning his PhD from Stanford in 1974, Gay served as professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. He has written more than 40 books, including bestsellers such as Five Wishes, The Big Leap, Conscious Loving, and The New Conscious Loving Ever After. Uh, the last two were co-authored with his wife of more than 35 years, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks. He is also a mystery novelist with a series of five books featuring the Tibetan Buddhist private detective Tenzing Norbu. And most recently, he has launched a new mystery series featuring a Victorian-era London detective, Sir Errol Hyde. And uh, as we're recording this, uh, we are on video and I'm looking at uh, Gay and he has a giant bookshelf behind him of books that were all written by him. Pretty impressive. He's also appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, 48 Hours, and now this podcast. Gay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Nice to be with you. It is absolutely an honor to have you on. I first came across you when I heard about uh, your book, The Big Leap, and uh, I bought it and put off reading it for a while. And then when I finally did, it, it kind of hit me over the head like a ton of bricks. And this is some stuff that I just really needed to hear about uh, limiting beliefs and your upper limited beliefs, finding your zone of genius, and um, some things on relationships that I found really valuable. And so I want to get into uh, some of that stuff. But I also think your, your background and your story is really intriguing. So I'd love to start with that, if you don't mind. Um, share a little bit of your origin story and how you got to where you are today. Well, I grew up in Leesburg, Florida. I was a third generation Floridian. My grandparents moved to Florida around the turn of the last century, um, so around 1900 or so. And then my mom was born in 1911. And uh, she grew up eventually to be the mayor of Leesburg, Florida, where she was born and where I was born. And so uh, we have a long tradition in Florida, although I ended up marrying a Yankee and uh, moved off up into the great north and then ultimately west. Uh, my wife is from California. And uh, so we uh, kind of had a feeling we would eventually move out here. And back about 1995, we moved out here to California to be near her parents also who were getting up in years and we wanted to look after them. And so uh, after they passed away around 2005, we moved over here to our current town. We live in a little mountain valley called the Ojai Valley, spelled O-J-A-I. And uh, I happen to think it's paradise on earth. I've been around the world 30 some times now and uh, this is a place I'm proud and happy to call home. Very creative, wonderful place to live. And it used to be a uh, spiritual gathering place for Native Americans way back a couple of centuries ago. There's still a lot of pottery you find here and things like that from way back in that area. So it was a place of pilgrimage and it has that feel to it. So, but I um, have been a, both an entrepreneur and a writer full time since way back because I wrote my first book and published it in 1975. And right after that, I started entrepreneuring my own 
seminars and workshops, I found that, um, as you probably found as an entrepreneur, you can do a whole lot better um, setting up things yourself than you can parceling out your time for other people. Yeah, and you have a lot so, more control anyway. Yeah, and uh, so um, I, I've always kind of been an entrepreneur at heart, even when I was a kid. I always had some little business going. Uh, I remember one of my first businesses was selling eggs to neighbors, and uh, I would carry around the bag of a dozen eggs, and I forget what they cost. I think it was either 50 cents or 60 cents at a time for a dozen eggs. And um, uh, then a while, lawn mowing business for a while, and then uh, my big coup was watermelons, though. I would buy watermelons for, in those days, you could buy an entire watermelon in the height of watermelon season in Florida for like 10 or 15 cents. And so um, what I would do is I would buy a whole watermelon and then slice it up into pieces and stand by the side of the road holding up a piece of cold watermelon, you know, and people would just whoosh, 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 they'd be driving right in. And so um, those are some of my first experiences. And uh, to this day, we've had the Hendricks Institute now since 1989. And uh, my wife mostly runs that. She's kind of the brains of the gang as far as being able to read spreadsheets and uh, handle bookkeepers and personnel things and that kind of thing. So I do a lot of the big picture stuff. And uh, she and a team of uh, people are in the other room right now. I'm back in my home office and she's in there with a team of a couple of people doing stuff. And so we kind of have our, um, our company that kind of runs out of here, but we also have an office that I very seldom uh, get to because I've kind of established my comfort zone and my zone of genius here in this room. So I do a lot of my interviews now on um, Skype and Zoom. Oh, that's really cool. And um, such a great background. I remember you talked in your book, uh, The Big Leap, about uh, your uh, roots, entrepreneurial roots, selling watermelons by the side of the road and that sort of discovery that, hey, if you chop it up and make it uh, easy for people to consume, they'll pay a lot more money for it, which is that's sort of like the, the basics of entrepreneurship, right? And business that you take something you buy at wholesale, you parse it out into something that people really want to buy and package it how they want to buy it. And they'll, they'll pay more money and hopefully it adds up to uh, a lot more than what you paid for it. Well, yeah, because I forgot to tell you that part of the story. I had to change my business model and it was actually a marketing coup that saved the business because at first I took four watermelons down to the side of the road and I, my thought was, okay, I'll buy them for 15 cents, which I did, and then I'll carry them down and I'll sell them for a quarter. And if I sell out, I've got 40 cents, you know, and that looked like big stuff to me. I had to carry all four of the watermelons back up the hill at the end of the day because I didn't sell any of them. And so then I figured out, okay, I'll chop them into eight pieces, charge a nickel each, and by golly, that's 40 cents a watermelon. So now I'm taking home gigantic sums. Right. And so that was the breakthrough, the marketing breakthrough that uh, saved my watermelon business. But I'll tell you, if you want to go in the watermelon business, you got to be willing to stand in the Florida sun all day. And that's kind of the, the downside of it because get to be about one o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> You've been out there in the brutal sun all day. So uh, it has its challenges. I was going to say, I grew up in central Florida as well. And uh, you mentioned lawn mowing. I also uh, did a lot of that in high school um, because there's no shortage of need for that because the grass grows so quickly. Um, but uh, it takes some some strength and stamina to stand out there in the, the Florida heat and humidity in the middle of July and August and September, mowing lawns and doing stuff. When I was 15, my wife, uh, my wife, my mom made me go work for the highway maintenance crew for the summer. 
And that's when I learned that I did not want to do, you know, manual labor for a living and that I definitely needed to go to college and uh, get into some white collar work. Well, you and I had the same mom then because my mom put me on a construction crew when I was, I can't remember if I was in the 11th. Yeah, I was in the 11th, between the 11th grade and the 12th grade. And uh, I was the only like high school kid on this crew of really grizzled veterans. Same here. Come in and say, oh boy, you know, old Dewey got shot last weekend, you know, in a a (laughs) drunken brawl. And, you know, they'd be talking about stuff that made my hair stand on end. Uh, But uh, it was good training. It made me really want to go to college. Yeah. Same here. Exactly. They had already been hammering in me that I needed to go to college. And then after I did that, I absolutely knew. Speaking of, of going to college and intellectual academic pursuits, I know from reading your book, you also knew from a very early age that you wanted to get into psychology. So how did you discover that? Well, the story that's told about me, which is I can sort of remember it, but I remember one part of it that it was raining the day I got my first tricycle. And I got it for my birthday, which is always January 20th is when my birthday is. So it was January 20th in Florida. I was four or five years old, probably four actually. And uh, I started... um, pestering my grandma to let me ride my um, tricycle in the living room. She had this huge living room and because I couldn't go outside. It was my birthday and I really wanted to ride my tricycle, but it was raining and I couldn't go outside. And so finally, my grandma, who was the most wonderful, loving woman, although very straight-laced and stern, she let me ride my trike for once inside in the living room. And the first thing I did was after riding it around a few times, is I put a box over in the corner and I made it my office and I would commute to my office on my tricycle and park my tricycle outside. Then I would climb into the cardboard box and there I would be in my office. And what I did in my office, my, in my imagination was people came to me and gave me problems to solve and I helped them solve it. And I was clear. I told people in my family that I didn't hand, don't come to me with any physical problems. That's not the kind of problems I handle. I'm a different kind of doctor. And they would see this was a town that did not have a psychiatrist or a psychologist or anything remotely resembling this. So they actually sincerely asked me, well, what kind of a doctor would it be then? And I said, well, it's the kind of doctor that talks to you about basically problems of living, you know, and they thought that was the funniest thing that here was this little kid sitting in a cardboard box, willing to counsel people on problems of living. And uh, so anyway, that was a big, uh, big joke remained in my family. And up until my teenage years, people would rib me about it, you know, like, are you sitting in your box today? Right. Or have you commuted into town on your tricycle yet? And so they they gave me endless ribbing about it. So, but uh, I think each of us, I mean, to be serious for a moment, each of us has within us what I call a spark of genius. And it doesn't matter if it's a spark of genius at writing a great symphony or making a great soup. What it is, is you have something in you that has the capacity to surprise you and has the capacity to surprise others. And I think it's up to us in our life to go after that, to find that, to nurture that spark of genius and to bring it forth. And that's what really the big leap is all about. Because I'll tell you, I'm up in my 70s. I started in my field when I was in my 20s. And so 1968, so I, I'm 
my math skills are limited, but whatever 1968 to 19, I mean, to 2018. And so that's about 50 years, isn't it? 50 years. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So for the past 50 years, when I saw my first client in 1968, big strapping football player guy named Gary, who was afraid of snakes, interestingly enough, he was this big, strong guy. But anytime he saw pictures of snakes in a magazine, he'd freak out. And it was causing him problems because his girlfriend and he would go to movies and would be fine until the snake appeared. And then here this big six foot six, 240 pound guy would turn into a kind of a whimpering mass. And so uh, I helped him move through that issue. And that hooked me for life on what turns me on to this day, 50 years later, is that look on people's faces when they shift from one state of consciousness to another. They shift from one reality, the reality of limitation, to the, to the reality of, oh, creative possibility. Oh, I see what I could do. And boy, I'll tell you, from a, you know, the, the kid that drove his tricycle, that's what I think I was after then. But even now, on the other end of my life, I can still say it's the very best juicy thing you can do in life is assist another person or have a breakthrough yourself to a new reality of possibility. Yeah, well, let's get into that because uh, you talk in the book, uh, The Big Leap, about uh, really the importance of finding that zone of genius and trying to operate in your zone of genius because it's the thing that you're the best at, you enjoy, you'll be happy all the time, you know, time moves really at whatever speed you want it to at that point. But I think a lot of people probably have the question, how do you find that? How do I discover my uh, spark of genius or zone of genius? Okay, so fasten your seatbelts because it's so simple but so powerful that almost nobody takes me up on my invitation to do it. But when I go and consult with a, a CEO of a corporation, sometimes I come in and I'll work with some person for a day about a particular issue and I spend all day with them and they have to pay a lot of money for that. But whether I'm working with that person who's paying me a lot of money for it or some person sitting next to me in an airplane seat that's asking me stuff for free, I'm always going to be after helping them have a breakthrough to their creativity. And when they ask my advice on how to do it, I say, here's the way to find your genius. Today or tomorrow, but pencil it into your calendar, 10 minutes. I want you to go in a room by yourself for 10 minutes and do nothing but wonder about, hmm, what is my genius? Hmm, what is my genius? And I want you to say that sentence out loud, and I want you to say it in your mind but don't bother to do anything else. You know, you might get off on a different chain of thoughts. That's okay. But come back to that. Use it like a mantra. Hmm. What is my genius? Next, I give them the assignment. Uh, you can get this in the big leap, but this is the, the advice I give right here in my office, whether it's a CEO or some high school senior who's got a glitch of some kind. It's to ask yourself, what do I most love to do? Again, it's, it's, it's worth going in a room for 10 minutes and just, hmm, what do I most love to do? Hmm, what do I most love to do? So spend 10 minutes wondering, pure wonder about it. Nobody 
who's ever done that has ever come back to me and told me it didn't work. It works. It's just, it's so powerful that most people won't get around to doing it. There's a great philosopher of several hundred years ago who said, uh, Blaise Pascal was his name, French philosopher. And he said that all of humankind's troubles stem from the inability to sit in a room by ourselves for 10 minutes doing nothing. Mm. So I want people to go in a room by themselves for 10 minutes, but I want you to do something. I want you to cultivate wonder because wonder is the gateway to creativity. In one of Einstein's notebooks, Andy, there's a, a passage about a question in theoretical physics that he wondered about every day for 27 years. He wondered about it for 27 years. You know, he yeah. just pondered it in his mind. To me, that's absolutely stunning because yeah. most people don't wonder for 10 seconds about whether they want to go to McDonald's or Burger King. You know, that they, uh, it's, it's sacred territory is wonder because it opens you up to this new world of creativity. Yeah, and this day and age, we expect answers so fast too. With that, you know, forgetting the, that there's distractions all around. But if we wonder something, I'm going to pull out Wikipedia and look it up right away. Then I'll give my chance to myself a chance to really think through things, ponder, wonder, and and come up with that. Um, my follow up question that I, I know others have as well is: Let's say you do discover what that zone of genius is. You know, for instance, why I think I know what mine is but it's not immediately profitable or maybe you don't think it's realistic to do it full time as a business and maybe great as a hobby. Uh, for instance, I have a business, a main business that I enjoy and that I am good at, but I think my true zone of genius is really in talking to people, building relationships, doing interviews like this, but this is not a profitable endeavor. This is just something fun that I'm doing to share value and knowledge with the world. How do I convert that so that I can spend more of my time in my zone of genius? Well, there's two thoughts I have about that. One is to build it up in increments. That you, at this stage of the game, you probably don't want to spend 48 hours a week doing podcasts. You know, you want to have a certain particular yep. amount of time, you go into it. Yep. And then put a priority, of course, if you so desire, on monetizing your podcast or monetizing it in some way by selling something else off it, your consulting or whatever. So you know, to put an hour or two or three a week in it is a good investment. I say people can prosper by spending first only 10 minutes a day in their zone of genius. And also another thought occurs to me too, that, yeah, I see I built it up from my 10%. I started out where I was spending less than 10% in my zone of genius. I now don't refer to zone so much as I call it a genius spiral. Oh, by the way, I should mention that the sequel to The Big Leap, which I've been working on for many years, is coming out in September. And awesome. so um, I'll be sure to come back and tell you about that when it comes out. It's called The Joy of Genius. And it uh, just uh, went on sale for pre-order on Amazon a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I can't and, wait. Uh, is uh, going crazy on the charts already. So. Nice. Uh, but the actual book will be out in, on September 25th. We're coinciding the publication to be on my wife's birthday. Excellent. Oh, that's great. 
This episode of the Entrepreneur Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. At Advantage, we offer creative learning solutions that can help accelerate leadership development, business acumen, sales performance, and business results. Our clients say we're imaginative, collaborative, insightful, and fun. For more info, visit AdvantagePerformance.com or call us at 415-925-6832. And now back to the show. So you talk about building this up incrementally, and I think it's important for people to remember that. It's, it's in this day and age, especially with what people share on social media, it's so easy to look at even someone like you and say, look, he's spending all of his time in his zone. You're genius. It's amazing. I wish I could do that. And forgetting the fact that you're in your 70s, you've been building this up over many years and learning and discovering and growing and changing, and all of us are, and it didn't just happen overnight. No, it came actually, you know, it comes through a series of choices because I can even remember way back in graduate school when I was about to get my PhD and a lot of my people that were in the program, all they wanted to do was go into private practice because that was where the money was. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of my professors saying, are you heading toward private practice or you, do you want to be a university professor? And I said, well, I'm definitely on the university professor track but I'll tell you a secret. The main reason I want to be a university professor is so I can have my summers to write. <laughs> and, uh, I said, that's the best thing I can do. I'm a pretty good teacher. I'm not a great teacher, but I know I can do a good job at a university. But I really want to use it as a, as a vehicle for writing because uh, that was my passion. And so um, I didn't know there wasn't any such thing as pop psychology at the time where you could go on Oprah or on a podcast. or right. Uh, anything like that. It was only a couple of different channels, but um, I knew I didn't want to trap myself in an office for 45 hours a week. And uh, even though my friends that did that were driving Mercedes and I was still clunking around in my old VW, I still uh, really uh, appreciated my life choice because with every one of those summers, I wrote a new book. And so gradually they took on a life of their own that was much larger than anything that I was getting through the university. Yeah, I remember you talked about in The Big Leap, this sort of the dichotomy between the private practice and the professor track and how the grass is always greener for one over the other, right? Because the private practice uh, psychologists were making a lot more money, but they were working all the time and had no time or perceived that they had no time to work on that book. Whereas the uh, university professors had all that time, but they were jealous of the others for for, uh, making more money. And I think this is something that can be true in almost all different walks of life where we have a choice, right? To take on a profession that is going to make us more money, but we know we're going to have to work 60, 70 hours a week and barely have time to spend with our family, let alone pursue a passion or a hobby versus maybe taking that easier, lower paying job and spending time cultivating that, that zone of genius or those other things we want to do. I can remember my first academic job was $13,000 a year in 1974 at the University of Colorado. And at the time I had a a friend who was in private practice and he was making this grandiose sum at the time of 70 or $80,000 a year. But I remember chiding him on something because I, I called him once to talk to him about something at four o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, beautiful day, isn't it? And he said, oh, is it? You know, he'd been in his office like from 7 a.m. seeing one client after the other. Right. And so that became the mantra when I would tease him. I was, oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. Well, 
So speaking yeah. of that, you know, you had more time to work on some of those passion projects and those people may not have. And I wanted to ask you about time. And in particular, in the book, The Big Leap, you talk about this idea of Einstein time, where you, um, you theorize that people really have all the time they need to do what they want. And it's really kind of a shift in mindset. I wonder if you could explain that. And then uh, I have a, a follow-up question for you about it. What I call Einstein time is when you're doing what you most love to do, you enter an expanded type of consciousness where time becomes your friend. You have enough time to do what you really want to do. If you ask most people, they'll say they don't have enough time to do what they really want to do, but they've got it backwards. And in other words, they're waiting for time to do the stuff. And I'm saying, even if you only do the stuff for 10 minutes a day, whatever your genius is, if you start putting 10 minutes into it, that's going to lead to 20, to 30, to 40, and time will expand to accommodate your genius. Time expands to support our genius. So the more you spend time in your genius, the more time you will have to spend time in your genius. But if you try to do it the other way around, if you wait for the time to do your genius, I always say there's never enough time to do the things you really don't want to do anyway. Uh, that's interesting. Can, and does that... Does that kind of become the, the opposite or the answer to Parkinson's law, which typically says that work will fill to the time that you have allotted for it? So if you have an hour book to do something, even if you could do it in 10 minutes, it'll take you an hour. And this seems to be sort of like the opposite where you're saying time will expand to the work that you want to get done when you're in your zone of genius. Um, I, in fact, it brought to mind as you were saying that, Andy, a funny uh, memory of... Uh, one summer way back to support my writing habit uh, when I was, uh, before I got my university job and all that, I worked in a public liquor, um, in the state of Maine, they only sell liquor through um, state stores. stores. You can't yeah. go to a private liquor store. And I worked in one of those government liquor stores, which was odd at the time because I didn't drink. Finally, in my 30s and 40s, I cultivated a little taste for wine and beer, but still not a big drinker. But anyway, at the time, I didn't drink alcohol, but I worked in this liquor store all summer because there was so little to do that I got to spend a lot of my time writing in the back room. And the first day on the job, one of our jobs was to take down all of the you had to put a card in when you sold a bottle of liquor. So we had to bring down all these cards and then enter them on this big list. This was way before computers. And the first day they assigned me to a section of the store and I did it in about, oh, maybe 25 minutes, 30 minutes max. And I came back and asked the manager, well, what do I do next? And he said, oh man, <laughs> you want to take it a little easier. You know, you're going to make oh, yeah. the other guys feel bad because they were all taking two, three, four hours sometimes to do this. And so um, I had the same experience or talked to a friend who one summer worked for the post office department and he came back at noon. He'd run his whole route and the postmaster said, hey, man, you're going to make everybody look bad. Take it a little easier out there. So I, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of that that goes on in the world. But the real essence of the problem is that we haven't been coached to go looking for our genius, that what we most love to do, that people, when they begin to really focus in on that, suddenly the time begins to grow that they're able to spend time doing it. And that, to me, is a beautiful thing. That's a new kind of physics, I think. It's, uh, it's kind of like the same thing that, 
you know, they talk a lot about positive thinking. There are a lot of books about mm -hmm. positive thinking. But yep. I've just found in my own mind, like I remember a person asking me once for the first time, what do you want? What do you really want to accomplish in your life? And I never really thought about that. But once I actually sat down for a few minutes and thought about what I really wanted to accomplish for my life, it became much, much easier than to just go for it because it's a lot better to do that than going through life kind of, you know, battering around from place to place. Yeah. So, uh, right. And when would you say that relates to when you get into that zone of genius or you know what you really want to do and you're connecting things back to what you really want out of life, you want your goals, you get into sort of that flow state where time almost kind of stands still as you're getting things done. Um, but the flip side of that is I think people would push back and say, well, you might get lost in that and, and time passes and then you become late to other things or you run out of time to do other things. And I, I love what you said in the book about how people blame their schedule and they blame time because it's so true. And I catch other people doing that now myself too, but especially other people saying, well, I don't have time for this. And I will push back now and say, well, you actually have time to do whatever you want. It's just about your priorities and what you choose. But I think some people might push back and say, listen, we all have the same amount of time. I have these responsibilities. I have to get them done. How, does, how, how can you say that I have all the time I need? It has a lot to do with priorities because, for example, when I was growing up, a lot of, I heard a lot of people complaining about never having enough time to do what they really wanted to do. But I noticed that those same people would spend the entire evening drinking a bottle of vodka and smoking a pack of Camel cigarettes. You know, so that was the priority over whatever it was they wanted to do. And so I think that one of the key skills in life is learning to prioritize your creativity so that it's very high, so you treat it as sacred space. Because I believe it is inside ourselves, what makes us most fully human is our ability to hatch new ideas and to come up with new ways of doing things and new ways of solving problems. And to me, creativity is kind of the glory of being a human being, is that we get to think up a new solution. You know, just look at what we've accomplished in the past 150 years. When my grandparents were first living in Florida, you know, they all got malaria because of the mosquitoes. And when I was growing up in Florida in the very same town, sometimes in the very same house, I didn't get malaria because by then science had come along and done some things. And the same thing, you know, 115 years ago, the infant mortality rate was 50%. Half of the children died. It still is in many places in the world, but now in a good bit of the world, we've taken that down to a very small fraction. And so I celebrate our creativity and being able to do things like eradicate polio. And see, I think that if we can do that sort of thing, we can re-engineer ourselves so that we don't need to go having a war every 15 or 20 or 25 years or having a depression every 30 or 40 years. You know? So I, I think we can engineer some better ways to deal with problems that seem unsolvable now. Yeah. And all, all those solutions came from people spending time thinking, pondering, getting creative, testing things. And, um, but the interesting thing about as time goes on and the modern technology we have now, modern society, there are so many distractions that are taking people's time. And people say, well, I don't have enough time to do X or Y. I don't have enough time to focus on my fitness or spend time in my zone of genius. Or I can't take 15 minutes out of my day to just think. But then as you point out, 
what else are they spending their time on, right? Well, how are they prioritizing their time? And it could be really important that they do prioritize their time to spend um, time on that. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is you talk about upper limit beliefs a lot or upper limiting, uh, you know, upper limit beliefs and how people run into those. And especially uh, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about um, the problems that people create in relationships, right? And argue, having arguments and sabotaging their relationship. And I think I've experienced that myself many times. I've been married for 14 years. I have two kids and there are plenty of opportunities for that, right? Um, but one of the things you mentioned is the importance of having that, uh, quote, 10-minute sweaty conversation, right, that uh, is uncomfortable and could maybe save you a lot of time later. So hard for people to do. I wonder if you could just explain the importance of that and, why, and the benefits. Well, in my new book, The Joy of Genius, which isn't out yet, it's a sequel to The Big Leap. It'll be out soon, later on in the fall of 2018. I tell a story about in my pre-KD days, I've, uh, we've been together almost 40 years now, but in my unenlightened days before I met um, Katie, my wife now, of um, 39 years, I had a relationship with a woman named that I called Nora in the book. And she had a, her father was a traveling salesman when she was growing up and was always having affairs. And so it kind of wrecked her childhood. And so she had a big thing about it. Like if even I, if she saw me talking to somebody else at a party, she would get upset. And so she had a very big sensitivity about that. Well, I, one time I went away to speak at a conference and I had a one night stand with another woman who was presenting a seminar at the conference. And so I came back. And I avoided the 10-minute sweaty conversation with Nora until finally, it took a month or so, I felt more and more uncomfortable that I had this secret that I was carrying around. And so finally, I just told her one day. And she told me to get out. <laughs> I thought she would say thank you. <laughs> yeah, she wasn't too appreciative of that. Thank you for your honesty. Yeah. That was one of my life lessons I learned that day, that people always don't jump for joy when you right, uh, tell when them the truth. The but, but another thing I learned was that there's an incredible, even though she gave me a tongue lashing and told me to get out of her apartment, when I told her, I felt also a sense of liberation and freedom because I had spoken the truth of something that had been clogged in me for a, a month or so. And, you know, finally that relationship kind of wound down, but that taught me a big life lesson that when at all possible, tell the truth about something within seconds of it. Have, don't wait a month because I remember that, that month of just feeling like this little pebble in me started growing till it was the size of a bowling ball and just felt like I was carrying this burden. But the moment I released it, even though it probably ended the relationship, it still was this incredible, <sighs> And so that, uh, one of the things we talk about in our work is what we call living in a state of completion where there's nothing you haven't said that's important to another person, there's nothing you haven't listened to that's important, and that you're willing, you're willing to listen to whatever another person has to say. And that allows you not to carry a lot of excess baggage from every conversation. 
Yeah, that is, it's so important and so hard to do. Um, but I experienced this, a, a very um, small example of this just about a week ago where my wife and I got in an argument on a Sunday afternoon and it was really bothering me. I don't think it was really bothering her, but it was really bothering me for the rest of Sunday evening and into Monday morning. And I think in the past, I might've just let that go, but I've learned so much from your book and some others that you know, it's really important to have that conversation. So I brought it up and said, you know, I'm just feeling upset about the argument we had. And first of all, her reaction was what argument? So <laughs> she, she hadn't been holding it in like I had. And I told her and then, you know, she apologized and we, we talked things through and I felt so much better after that. And I had a great day um, because we had that conversation. But I think that's just, we often avoid those difficult conversations. And I try to make sure that all that stuff is on the table now. Like you, you talked about the state of completion with her, with my business partner, with clients that I work with. There's not anything that we're holding back or withholding. We're not keeping secrets because it's just going to cause so much stress and anxiety inside of us. So important. So thinking about, um, as we go to wrap things up, uh, entrepreneurs that may be um, starting a business or running their own business or part of an organization, given what you have learned over the decades and what you teach in this book, what's one more piece of important advice that you think uh, is important for people to remember as they are starting to grow and maybe achieve more success, but also running into challenges along the way as well? Carve out a little bit of sacred space time for yourself, whether it's 10 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour every day that you can focus on cultivating your genius. The more you do that, the better life will work all around. I've never seen an exception to that. And so the more you dedicate yourself to your own creativity, the more it facilitates the creativity of people around you. And that's ultimately to me, well, my, my life purpose that I, I, developed in 1977, which I still have, which is I expand in love, creativity, and abundance every day as I inspire others to do the same. And to me, that's life at its best. I was going to say that if you didn't. I have a, a list of daily affirmations that I read every morning, and yours is, uh, that mantra is right on there that I, I say it every single morning now because Great. it perfectly fits how I want to live my life, which is to fulfill my own true potential and also inspire others to do the same. And that's one of the reasons why I have this podcast and love connecting with people like you who are doing the same thing and just love everything that you're doing, Gay, and just really appreciate you coming on this, this podcast. For anybody listening that wants to go find out more about you and get your books, possibly get in contact, where's the best place for them to go? Probably the easiest place is just to go to our basic website. We have a bunch of different websites, but the uh, basic one, Hendrix.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. That's kind of a good jumping off place to our other things. Like we have a whole website called heartsinharmony.com, where people can get our e-courses and home learning materials. Uh, so either heartsinharmony or Hendrix.com. Got it. All right. We'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, as we were recording this, I went and already pre-ordered your, uh, your new book, which is coming out in September. Uh, I can't wait to check that out. And uh, we'll put a link to that as well. And we'll maybe have to have you back on to talk about that new book when that's out. Um, because I think it sounds like there's a lot more um, uh, practical advice in there as far as uh, living your zone of genius. So Gay Hendricks, thank you so much for making time to come on the podcast today and sharing some of your experience, your knowledge and wisdom. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I think that our listeners do as well. 
All right, from another Florida boy to uh, another Florida boy. Yes, sir. All right. All right, take care. Take care. And wisdom. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I think that our listeners do as well. All right, from another Florida boy to uh, another Florida boy. Yes, sir. All right. All right, take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Hot Seat. You can find more information at entrepreneurhotseat.com or my personal website, andystorch.com. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, or if you are looking for ways to take your life and business to the next level, you can send me an email to andy at andystorch.com. Take care.